Welcome to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Hi, welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. And I am thrilled here today to have Jason as a veto. Am I saying that? That's perfect. Hey, oh, wow. I was rolling dice on that one. I'm like, all right, we got it. Well, I, and, and you're in San Antonio today. I, I definitely want to jam into this because there's just so much that you bring to the table in the world of supply chain, you know, kind of the next evolution of manufacturing. And there's so many things that you are like right in the bullseye of right now coming out of the pandemic. And as things are shifting geopolitically right now in front of us, you know, you're watching you know, Pelosi's trip into Taiwan, what does that mean for China? How does that tension kind of, you know, reshape the tables of manufacturing? And there's a whole new world order coming out here and you're in the thick of it. So I want to dive in. And, but first and foremost, I want to start with the beginning of, you know, who is Jason? How did, I mean, your origin story, if I can call it that in the world of Marvel is pretty fascinating. So I'd love to just sit back for a little and let you go. Awesome. Thanks for, uh, first off, thanks for having me, Richard. My origin story is kind of, it's weird to <laughs> say the least. I, so I, along with my brother, we started our first manufacturing when I was 15, uh, manufacturing company when I was 15 years old. We, uh, I, I kind of have to set the stage though. And I, I'll, I'll tell you a story that explains frankly what set this in motion. It's, uh, we started our first manufacturing company in February of 2007. Right, everyone knows what happens in February 2008, mm-hmm. or the, the or it, w- within one year, markets just crashed. But more importantly, we grew up in a, in a factory house. My my father worked same company 28, 29 years, and he, he had basically one rule: don't go into manufacturing, which we listened to horribly. But w- what was important to, for us growing up there is we saw how bad a manufacturing company could be ran. They had, he worked at the most profitable plant in the country for this company. But they they laid off the entire plant seven or eight times in just as many years. And they were changing ownership constantly. It was a mess. And when we started looking at it, what it was, was there was no respect for the employees whatsoever. And the, and management and the, and the, uh, the floor, employees were constantly at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. There was the, there was safety stuff, the machinery was old. And they these these people are still making it the most profitable plant in the country. Mm-hmm. So we grew up seeing all of the bad side of what could happen with the wrong ownership in the manufacturing industry, but what could happen on the amazing side with a bunch of workers. Yeah. So going back to us uh, I'm 15 years old starting a company mm-hmm. and made a basic promise that we would never run our companies like this. Mm-hmm. And, and from a, just, it, it produces a better company to not run it like that, but also just that you, it's about making people's lives better. And if you do that, they will make the company better. So we started in t-shirts and apparel manufacturing. We're very fortunate. Um, by that 2007 2008 crash because we've got every everybody's telling me you're, you're gonna fail don't start a company now you're only 15 everything under the sun and one person told me something that i will never forget 
you're going to lose everything you have. I'm 15 years old. I had $600. But what it did is it made it click. Everything everyone was telling me was their fears. The things that have limited them all this time. The, the reasons why they, they haven't done it. Mm-hmm. Where then I started taking a step back and all the friends I had that had done something really cool, had built companies. None of them were telling me I'm gonna, that this is going to fail. They're all going, go look for opportunity. There's Every market's good. So we started going. We were able to buy machinery at pennies on the dollar. And we're <laughs> giant, giant competitors are going uh, bankrupt because their cash flow tightens up. But that doesn't mean that they don't have clients anymore. They still have these amazing clients that nobody else could usually get into. But this company shut their doors. So these people have to go somewhere. So in a matter of seven months, we picked up Disney, Nike, Adidas, te- uh, Tesla. Like, it was, you name it, we picked up the, the cream to the crop. But it was just changing that mindset and understanding we were in a good industry. Manufacturing was in a great time and really changing how you look at it to find that there's a lot of good business. Right. right. Well, let me, let, me, let me double click on that because you open up a really interesting point of view. I mean, literally an insider's point of view. And if you roll the clock back, you always hear these you know, pundits and we can, we can dispel pundits. I guess we count ourselves as pundits now that we're talking about this stuff. But, but that said, that aside, uh, you know, manufacturing used to be kind of the, 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 the central nervous system of the United States back at the turn of the you know, 19th into the 20th centuries, right? I mean, that was one of the things that we innovated and figured out. And eventually it went away, right? It went out for all. And, and you're kind of, you're, that it sounds like may have lived the culmination of the kind of the, the, the nadir, the, the trough that, that the United States manufacturing has fallen into, you know, potentially. So my first question, or it's a two-part question. One is, from your perspective, you know, historically looking back, how did manufacturing move away from the United States? And then the second part is kind of coming forward is, you know, it sounds like inherent in your mission is to reconsider manufacturing coming back into the United States or anywhere for that matter, based on the principles you're talking about. So you, you, you touch on a really good point is that it, it did, it, it got pulled out very quickly. And really, it, it, it's not, there's no magic secret to it. Low wage countries came in and said, we're going to do it at wages that are arguably not even livable wages in other locations, right. but definitely couldn't be done in the U.S. for that. And, and, and frankly, American manufacturing held on for quite some time because American workers were so much more effective. Mm-hmm. But the reality is you, there was only so long you could fight it. And I actually, there's a lot of companies that you look at, manufacturing companies, during that trough, that's when you started to see this kind of revival of treating the employees badly mm-hmm. was because the ownership of these American companies was sitting there going, I'm taking off, uh, I'm taking on a competitor that I can't take on because they're using wages so incredibly low that I couldn't even, I, I could never get there. So they start pulling perks out of the companies. You start seeing pensions disappear. You start... All they, they start trying to pull every dime they could just to keep up. But then the turning point, American manufacturing, American industry, Ameri- Americans in, in their soul 
did what Americans do best. They innovated their way out of the problem. Mm-hmm. It's simple as that. Mm-hmm. We are in a position now that it is more fiscally responsible in many cases to produce in the U.S. than it is other countries. How do we do it? Advent of automations, processes. Now we're taking humans and using them for what they're best at and having machines do the things that hurt humans' bodies that require monotonous work. And pairing those two now makes it that American companies can oftentimes beat any any organization in the world because that investment in innovation is, is happening. And if we look at the entire world in the last 10 years, how drastically, how, how, how we live, how has that changed? I mean, I, I remember in school, my teachers always, you have to know how to do addition because you won't have a calculator in your pocket every day. Well, actually I do, right? <laughs> Sorry. So, I mean, think of something that simple as, hey, maybe addition on paper is not really a necessary skill anymore. Right. People forget that the manufacturing industry went through that same 10 years where innovation was just happening so fast. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing it all the time that companies are bringing work back from all over the world to the U.S. because it's fiscally responsible beyond the fact that it's easier to control and that 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 you can go see the plants instead of having to fly halfway across the world, but fiscally it works too. Yep, yep. And 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 so also with inherent within that, and I was going to you know kind of the so that's that's how and why you know sadly things got distributed. But it, it add to that, just my two cents on that also is it you also are illustrating at that moment when manufacturing at that at the time was sort of country or provincially specific. The moment manufacturing started getting distributed out to lower wage economies, that's when the world turned into a global economy and it hasn't changed. It's actually, it's more integrated. So I look at, you know, supply chain and manufacturing being a key component of supply chain. And all all you're talking about is the world became one big economy and global manufacturing or global companies started looking at the whole world, you know, as their ecosystem, no longer country by country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just elaborating on that even a little more, what happened is manufacturing builds economies. So as these struggling world economies started doing manufacturing, they started making money, which allowed them to buy products, which started getting bought from everywhere in the world. So if you look at every great economy, it was built on manufacturing. I don't really that is the reality. The, the countries that manufacture the most, they that those economies start growing and thriving. It, right. It's history proves it over and over again. Right. So, so now bring it forward a little bit. Then, so what is changing in the midst? Of, so, so let's just say that was you know the the manufacturing sector started moving around. Really, I mean, I'll ask you this, but I mean, in my mind, it's really kind of post World War II, so kind of in the 50s ish, 40s, 50s ish, or was it before that? No, I, it, I actually argue it's, it was after that. Uh, um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. After World War, right? Like 40s, 50s, yeah, 60s. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I'm thinking. Uh, I always look at it as mid 70s. Yeah, okay, that fair it enough. Really fair started enough. to cut. Kind of, that's yep. when you kind of started to see things just pull away. Right. Uh, there, there was po- for years post-war. There was still fair. a lot. Hey, fair, I, fair, I, you're I right. You're right. Yeah, 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 that's, fair. that's why I ask you. You're the expert. That's why I'm asking the question. I mean, I knew it was sort of because the World War II, 
that was sort of the last geopolitical conflict amongst countries. Then all of a sudden, post that, even though there's these little skirmishes, that's all theater, honestly. It's kabuki theater to me, you know, at this point, right? It, they, they all, it's all one big group <laughs> at the end of the day. I'm not like, getting all conspiracy here, but I'm just saying, like, I mean, come on, like, like the idea of a standing war is just not going to happen anytime soon. So, with that, let's say in the 70s, so that's actually not that long ago. That's really only 40, 50 years ago. And now we're seeing a pendulum swing to go back the other direction. So, what's drive? I mean, besides everything you just said, which is a fundamental core competitive advantage to have manufacturing within your country, if that's how you're thinking of things. But what's changing now that, in your opinion, that you're driving that's bringing manufacturing back into the United States itself or just reallocating around the world differently? There's a series of factors. One of them, which we've touched on, is innovation. Yep. The, the fact that automation now, and I don't only mean robotics, but just even better processes, mm-hmm. that's a huge component. That, that, that is a that that is a hard uh, line. Uh, that, that's a, a hard thing to ignore. Mm-hmm. The other thing is is like anywhere else, low a lot of low wage countries, manufacturing built their economies up, started making their people money, and now they're like, well, wait, I wa- I'm not working for that rate anymore. Right. So the, you're watching wages uh, adjust too. But another important one that a lot of people forget. We use things faster now. Yes. You go back to the 50s, 60s, you had that teapot and grandma passed it on to my mom and and it just stayed in the family. Now, a year later, oh, I don't like that color anymore. Throw it away. So the speed at which we use products, it it is very helpful to have them made nearby. Mm -hmm. And you, the idea of, I, I take like, a company like Apple, they release a new iPhone pretty, pretty, pretty continuously. If you really think about it, and they have six, seven days stock at any given time mm-hmm. because they want that. They want to be able to iterate over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, the 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 shorter you make that supply chain, the more you can iterate, mm-hmm. and the more you can regionally make it specific to your clientele that wants it. So. A lot of companies have figured out, hey, if if I have better controls over this and it's more regional to where my clients are mm-hmm. or to, to my consumers are, I can get it to them faster. I'm carrying the note for less time. It's a better cash flow. So that plays into it. And then you add in the fact transportation is getting expensive and it is not going to go down anytime soon. It's we're it, it, containers are up, planes are up, fuels up. So it, you start weighing, okay, I have to be on the water for three weeks, plus I need to have this, uh, plus I need to pay for the shipping, plus, oh, if something goes wrong, now I've been waiting three weeks since it's taken me another three weeks to get it. Like, it, it just, the, the math all starts culminating to, wow, maybe more regional, more located is going to be helpful. Right. Well, okay, so that leads me to, so there's almost like this kind of, ebb and flow where you have this centralization that starts to happen and then fragmentation and then centralization and fragmentation, right? And so we're kind of going back ironically away from centralized manufacturing principles to more fragmented regional local, right? Totally cool. Get it. Now, question though is the feeder for manufacturing historically in a linear supply chain 
raw materials used to make those products. But in this new world order where circularity is coming in, thank God, top of mind, you now have an ability potentially, and here's my question, in regionalizing these manufacturing hubs and circularity is actually a means to get there because you are no longer constrained by, oh, I need to get this obscure whatever rubber from, you know, wherever, you know, Thailand. But if I have, I know in my region, people are using these products and I know I can get them back and recycle circular that way. How do you feel about how that circularity is going to have an impact on the speed at which provincial manufacturing starts to happen? Totally. It's, I mean, we look at it in businesses when we buy them is, hey, what available feedstocks are in the area? What, what is, but what are people using? What, hey, what, there's all sorts of different things that happen in these different organizations. I'll give a good example. Uh, one of the companies that we own, there is another major competitor that makes uh, steel products. Well, the steel products, the offshoots happen to be just the right size to make a product at Arkham. So mm. you can actually go find these, these extra things. And the more people are doing and paying attention, the more it does regionalize that. Yep. Well, but let me double click a little further on that one. So, because one of the things you're also highlighting, so I'm putting my sort of, you know, VCP hat on for a second here and say, okay, I'm looking at a manufacturing business like you're describing, and I'm kind of looking for the core attributes, right? And one is I got to have a location. I got to have a facility. I got to have some people. But like you said, I need feeder stock of materials to feed into this ultimately, right? I need, I need food supplies, right? To make this thing work, right? You know, and if it's not there, then I got to get it in there somehow. Okay. And circular now all of a sudden gives a different opening innovation in how I approach a classic problem, which is what you just described. Manufacturers historically, as they fragmented, said, oh, you know, 70, 80, 90 years ago, I'm going to go put my facility closer to where the feeder stock is. Now in a world that's hyperly connected and we're going the other direction and pulling things into these now more provincial regional manufacturing facilities, and I'm going to be pulling, and I'm trying to avoid using virgin materials, right? It just, to me, it feels like we're, at the, we're on the, there's some, some innovation in how I approach my manufacturing design at the forefront, right? And, and selection process. Is that, do you see that? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah it's, I mean, you want to, you want to design products that can be manufactured where your plants are. I've, you brought up a really, a point that I've had long discussions with, with colleagues over, over the years. And it's these companies that go, oh, I'm going to put my manufacturing plant near my feedstock. And I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And they're like, that's the way it's done. I'm like, think this through. When anything we build is in its raw material form, it takes up so much less space to transport than when it's in its finished good form. Mm -hmm. I want my plant next to my customers, not next to my suppliers. Yes. Yes. And and I've never understood it because mm-hmm. I I understand on paper. It makes sense. You take it from one building to the other, but you, you, it needs to be near the person who's going to use it. Mm-hmm. And guess what? In situations like that, if you build a manufacturing plant and you got a supplier, they're going to do the same thing you did. They're going to go to who's using their raw material, which mm-hmm. is going to be your factory. Mm-hmm. So you start by fragmenting. You also get 
a lot of investment into these smaller communities. Mm-hmm. And it goes much further than a single plant. Because if, say I buy a plant in the middle of Georgia, very, very rural area, and this is a, this is a true story that we're, that we're working on. The, the base concept for people is, oh, move it to a more populous area so you can get more people and stuff. No, because if I keep it there, guess what? The steel supplier, as I buy more and more steel, they're going to open a distribution center to service me mm-hmm. because they, they don't want to deal with shipping it all that way. So all this investment starts coming into the community because these companies are staying there. Right, right. So that, that is core to what we do is uh, with, with the private equity firm is we are constantly trying to, to buy legacy companies and hold them in the communities that they're in and yep. grow them yep. because then that's a magnet that attracts a bunch of other stuff. God, you, you just, I mean, wow. Okay. I just had a huge blow up aha moment there, but you literally just painted out a roll-up strategy for private equity, whatever you want to call it, 3.0, 2.0, going and actually acquiring a bunch of rundown old manufacturing facilities in light of what's going to go on in the next 10, 20 years, right? In preparation for this more provincial manufacturing. I mean, that's got to be going on now, right? I mean, that, that, that is my entire business. I, yeah. I, I, don't a, I, I, I don't know. Okay, well, there we go. I run a private equity firm now that we go buy legacy American yep. manufacturing companies. These are great companies that have been incredibly resilient for what, with what's happened in the last 50 years. I mean, just yep. think of that. The, yeah, just right. the core resiliency that these companies have. Yep. And the normal, the, the buy the textbook private equity strategy is go buy a bunch of these, roll them up into one mega plant and gut them all. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa you're backwards guys. Yeah, yeah, you you yeah. don't understand what you, you don't understand the business. What we do is we buy them in the community and then we grow them in the community. Right. And when we do that, we have these great companies that just they're flowering. And especially with what we do, a lot of, we're buying these usually from second, third generation uh, families, yeah. and they're t- they're tired. Right? The, the reality yeah. is that 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 they are usually on exit strategy. If you think just the last decade, what these owners have gone through, they've had the dot com boom, September eleventh, uh, the two thousand eight crash, COVID. I mean, in in two decades, mm-hmm. they have had four major, major instances that should have shut them down. Yep. And that's just the last two decades. Yep. So we buy these companies because these owners have built in the resilience. Right. You've got fighters in the companies. And frankly, in the last 10 years, most of them know that they're going to retire. So they've stopped investing in innovation. So mm-hmm. we're able to come in, overlay some innovation onto these older companies, and you just watch them sprout and yep. grow. And so our, our private equity strategy is completely opposite to what most people would do, mm-hmm. and, but it works. And uh, we've, we've actually had a couple of ma- uh, major multi-billion dollar P firms that kind of shoulder taps going, what are you doing over there in the corner? We're like, oh, here's our, and we tell everybody our ideas. We want more people to do it. Yeah. And then we capped it off that at the liquidation date for the fund, which we're expecting five to seven years from now, we're actually going to ESOP 100% of the shares of the companies uh, to the employees oh, that's so, so that cool. the ownership stays in that community because it, it, it fiscally makes sense from the private equity side. But also, I truly believe this is the cornerstone that builds 
countries, economies, people, and that we've got to get back to it. But that's that you're describing though what a real partnership is, though, right? It's not going in, sucking money from the whole thing, and then kind of you know going on to the next one, very vampiric <laughs> its approach historically. You actually are there building the community, investing in people, yeah. right? And that's a whole different thing. So let me let me let me ask you a question is sort of you know, as we're looking now and kind of I mean, first of all, it, I mean the story is amazing. I mean, and it's, it's, I mean, we're seeing a whole, we're, we're seeing everything that used to be, I mean, I mean, I, not to get too out there, but I mean, the industrial revolution is giving way to the information age and everything that we, you, that the, the industrial revolution, right. Through the 20th century, up until really 20, 30 years ago, all those foundation things are getting ripped apart right now. Right. And that's a lot of the pain that we're feeling collectively as a globe. Right. But it's, it's, it's shifting in all the directions that you're going. Right. And there's another thing as we kind of go back to these more regional, because this is, think of the internet. The internet's going through a very similar exercise. It was sort of built out, fragmented, centralized, and now you hear all this stuff about edge computing. Well, edge computing is exactly the same as regionalized manufacturing, right? It's pushing the compute closer to the end user. I mean, it's the same principles, right? Um, but a couple of the things that are sort of on the horizon, and I'm curious as to see, because again, we're still thinking innovation. We're still thinking, you know, you've got a system level view of the manufacturing facility where it needs to be, how it needs to operate, and how it needs to maintain a partnership with technology, right? Because let's face it, it's not, I mean, you know, one of the other things that you have to be a part of is the technological revolution. You can't fight that. Yeah. Otherwise, you will go into the Librea yeah. pit of business, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> you fight it all you want. So how do you make manufacturing more collaborative where people are doing what people should do and robots are doing what robots should do or whatever, but also on the horizon is this whole 3D printing thing, right? That kind of changes, again, you go back to the packability of raw materials. Well, you know, uh, 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 the, the, not dust, but the, 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 the materials that you put into the 3D materials, right? Uh, um, that, I mean, that's even more packable, right? And that's another game changer that's just sitting there right on the horizon. I'm curious as to how you see that integrated into your manufacturing facility in the future. So 3D printing is getting there. Yeah, right. It's still it, early. It, 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 well, and it's early for a couple of reasons. Yep. First off, the technology, frankly, for all intents and purposes, was tied up in patent land for yep. way too damn long. Yep. Um, and so that once that patent last it was people could really start innovating with it so we're we're really seeing that to begin with. but the, there's a it's got a couple of challenges that nobody's quite on the edge of breaking okay um and it, everyone always blames it on speed and it's like well the reality is speed is an issue in 3d manufacturing but it'll people are going to fix it, it that no, mm -hmm. i'm not worried about that mm -hmm. it's design and reliability mm -hmm. So we, we touched on this earlier about having engineers design for local manufacturing. Nobody really knows how to design for 3D printed items yet. The, it's, and nobody knows what they're going to do in five, 10 years. We can guess mm -hmm. and we, we can run simulations and trials, but the investment it will take to do mass manufacturing and 3D printing, you have to know that it's going to work. Right. And this is where you're gonna need a, you're gonna need a crazy yep. person to, to take it on. Yep. Uh, you're gonna need the Jobs or the Musks of the world that are willing to push that envelope and go. If it doesn't work, I'll make it work. Yep. 
And nobody has taken that on. Right. And because it, it, it's daunting. It, it, it hasn't yeah. been tried at scale. It, it's not even that it hasn't been proven at scale. It just hasn't been tried. Uh, yeah. I was looking, are you familiar with the GigaPress that Tesla uses? No. Mm-mm. Okay, so oh, Tesla, I'm sorry, you said GigaPress? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. So did you, so that came to be because he was holding a Hot Wheels car and right. realized I want to, I want to, I cast this entire thing. He called the only three companies in the world who even stood a chance at making something that big, because nobody even come close to something that big in history. Mm-hmm. Two of the three said, absolutely not, you're crazy. One of them basically bet the farm. Yep. And goes, if I'm if there's any person I'm willing to bet with, it's gonna be Elon Musk. Right. So they did it. And now I think they have nine or ten on order. Right. And right. I, I I don't know the exact price, but I'm pretty sure those things are profitable. Yeah, them. right. Um, I think they're gonna be okay. Yeah. So, but it's it, it's gonna take somebody doing that. Right. And right. going, I don't even know if it's gonna work. Yep. But let's t- and once once that's that happens, it's gonna be it's gonna change everything. I, yeah. It's we're that will be a full revolution right right well okay and that's that's 100 percent, right and like anything else it's like space travel you know what i mean fast forward 100 years people are on the moon people are on mars we're probably god only knows interacting with some aliens who the hell knows whatever but it's you know that's it's not that far right and so even now looking 10 20 year increments you know that's not that far in the context of the thinking you have to get into right these are decade long kind of planning so good 15 20 years out 3d manufacturing different kind of tectonic shift but also then you know and I want to come back to circularity because I think that's a key component to the whole manufacturing exercise I see it in the supply chain world but now you know what we're really talking about is how do you start kicking circular materials back into the manufacturing supply chain and then how are you designing facilities to accommodate that? Furthermore, at the beginning of the, in the onset of the design of, of the product or whatever it is that you're manufacturing, now you got to start thinking, how do I reclaim that material? That's part of my design up front, right? Is I'm building something that's not only modular that goes together, but modularly is taken apart and able to easily yeah. go back into circularity. How do, how do you see that? That seems more imminent. So... <sighs> I'll give you an example of a project that I, that I was working on with a uh, with some friends, kind of as a more of a passion project. But that and what, one of my very good friends is actually going to take it and push it forward. Yes. Um, I, it, I, I'm not talking some round words because there are some certain parts of it that are interesting. But they found plastic to be a problem, mm-hmm. and that he has made his life dream to fix ocean plastic. Well, the problem with algae by chance? No, no, not not algae. I just did a podcast of the dude who's doing algae-based plastics as an alternative. That's why I was like, holy shit, you're talking about Ryan Hunt. So (laughs) he he took it on more in that in what I think is going to happen in circularity. Okay. He saw this giant feedstock Mm -hmm. and he goes, Why can't we deal with it? Well, because plastic has all of these different makeups and they can't be reused as plastic and stuff. So he goes, Great, what can it be reused as? Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean, you don't know what you're going to get out of it. He goes, what does every plastic have? Just get me to that point. So they have figured out that, that there was carbon. Yep. There were hydrocarbons. Yep. There was a couple other very, very valuable chemicals. Okay. And he goes, huh, what can I do to split this into the core components? And then we just 
throw away the things that are that are different. Mm-hmm. So that's where I think that, that circularity concepts will come in. Someone going, fine, I can't get perfect, but can I take what I've got mm-hmm. and find the lowest common denominator of a good volume of it, and then find a chemical or mechanical process to break it back apart and put mm-hmm. it back together. Mm-hmm. And they found a way to do it. It was, and it, it, it's absolutely ingenious. So I think that's what you're going to see is people going, here's what I got. How do I get to the base components? We're always going to have to have, add new stuff. You're not going to yep. be a perfect closed circle, right. but your base chemicals and base uh, fibers and things like that. I think that's where it's really going to happen is finding mechanical or chemical ways to separate things into base components. And okay. we talked about like 3D printing. What will really happen once that takes off, you're going to have a couple of different styles. And I think then you can just, you've got a much easier way to mechanically or chemically deconstruct something, put it right through the same system and push it again, because they're all built on the same building blocks. Got it. Yeah, yeah, great. That's a great answer. Great insight. I think that makes a lot of sense. And again, it's all, you know, this is all future. Could be a mix of all those. Could be none of that. You know, I'm, I, th- I think you're yeah, absolutely right. And it's interesting because I did have, and oh god, it was either last episode or two episodes. This gentleman out of Atlanta, not too far from where you're at in San Antonio, and he was mixing with bioalgae as an alternative for plastic, and has done some really interesting manufacturing uh, in the shoe space of all things. Right? It's all these shoes using algae-based plastics, whatever that really means. Cool. Yeah, it's really cool, uh, really cool stuff uh, because most people are using it biofuel. And when he got into it four, five, six, seven, eight years ago, he's like, okay, I see the fuel thing. But he was an engineer and happened to be a materials guy. And he's just like, well, oh my God, this is actually an alternative that I could use for plastic. And it's like, oh, geez, that sounds pretty freaking awesome. Um, and it's very pervasive and yada, yada. Anyway, so, so, so coming back then, now looking out kind of a little bit forward and thinking about this, so now you've got this sort of provincial, regional manufacturing happening. This is happening globally. This is not just the United States. This oh, yeah. is in Europe, Africa, South America. I mean, every country is, all, it's almost like we're seeing the fragmentation of manufacturing happen, you know, phase two or three or whatever you want to call this. and so. How do you see that playing out as far as, like you said, competitive advantages? Is, is it always going to be general manufacturing in these certain countries? So, for example, I think Finland, Sweden, Scandinavian countries, right? They're predisposed to building stuff in the cold for some reason. So they like just end up being more specifically cold manufacturing type elements. You know, is there some regionalization around manufacturing that occurs? Yeah. Yeah. So there will be. A real, in my opinion, there will be a regionalization of types of manufacturing. Yep, it's not going to be based on what the manufacturers want. It's going to be based on what the consumer in that region wants. Interesting. You're you're probably not selling a ton of beach blankets and umbrellas to somebody in, in, living in Greenland. Yes. Uh, like, right. It, so I think that's going to be the driver. Okay, and you're going to see. The same companies setting up in multiple areas so that they can service their clients where they want it, want the products. The, the best thing that happened with the globalization of manufacturing was people started sharing information. Whether they wanted to or not, they had to. And that is what I hope as things regionalize doesn't stop. Because yep. if, if we stop that, then only one country in the world becomes the best watchmakers. And only one yeah, right, country, right. country like that, and that's not good 
Because yep. guess what? If the watch market drops, that country's screwed. Yep. If yep. The, the U.S., the one manufacturing that we held and did not let go of almost at all was heavy heavy machinery. Right. We, but um, Caterpillar and John Deere pretty much said, yeah, um, we're, yeah. we're going we're gonna to do as much American made as we can. Yep. So, the, but when those markets hurt, Guess what? The whole sector hurts. So I think you're going to see a very wide array of products, but it's going to match what the consumers in the area want, mm-hmm. not what they are good at making. And how about, well, let me, and you make me think of a different kind of way to look at this too, is how does the function or manufacturing, so is, let me rephrase the question. Is manufacturing always going to have the duality of either being a manufacturing facility for an owned, you know, company, or is contract manufacturing like like contract, you know, manufacturing as a service? Like I'm, I'm even thinking this is a pure platform, right? Like, you know, thinking on a globally distributed, you know, because the facilities, how you build them, what you need to build, you know, what goes in there, like that's a skill onto itself. And you know, someone who's been in this and living and breathing it since he was 15, for God's sakes, right? Like. I'm assuming there's some IP in there and how you even look at how to build a facility that your typical, you know, company, like even Nike might be like, I don't even know how to do that. So I'm going to outsource it to you. You know, so the function of manufacturing as a service, you know, as a platform. So this, this is where partnership becomes incredibly important. Right. Manufacturing as a service, which I believe is the way it will go and, and stay. Most of my manufacturing companies manufacture for OEMs. That, yep. that is the reality. Yep. As long as it's treated as a partnership. Yep. The second the OEMs decide, oh, no, no, we're the smart ones that beat up on price on the manufacturing side, you're starting to see more and more manufacturers go direct to market. Yep. So that is a balance. It, it, is, it is truly a partnership. Uh, if you look at the partnership between Apple and Foxconn, mm-hmm. it is special. They truly are almost synonymous with each other. Yeah. So, but that was built the, over years and they, they've stuck together. They're not out cross-bidding each other on stuff. Like, mm-hmm. of course, there's price negotiations and all that, but look how long those two have been together. Right. And then, oh my God, they happen to be the most valuable company in the world right. because it's, they've built a partnership. Right. So that is what is important there. As long as OEMs remember that, they're going to be, it, 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 they're, people are insane to build their own manufacturing plants mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's its own skill set. Just like manufacturers are insane to go direct to consumer unless they go hire a giant design team, a marketing team, a, a, a channel marketing team. Okay. Like, get, get what you're good at. <laughs> right, right, right. But, well, but, but, but you but, but you an interesting point, though, when you get manufacturing direct, I mean, does, does the role of the internet, not to be that basic, kind of, kind of create that, not uh, sort of that check balance, if you will, right? That checks some against each other because now you do have that threat with the manufacturer. I mean, historically, the OEM can just be like, oh, "I'm going to go to someone else or whatever," you know, pull my pull my contract. Like they have the sort of Damocles hanging over the you know manufacturers' heads, right? But now the manufacturers have their own kind of hidden you know secret weapon, which is like, "Well, screw it, I'm just going to sell direct to the customer because I can I can I can literally open up a commerce page, you know, in three seconds." And just start selling directly, 
you know, I don't need your sales. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm just saying, like, is that also kind of created a good well, tension? Big, big, yeah. big time. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I know of every company we look at, every manufacturing company, within the last five to 10 years, every single one, may, minus one or two, maybe, mm-hmm. has added a direct consumer product. <laughs> and, and, and most of them have been successful in doing so. Right. So yes, it is. The, it, now, is that direct consumer product more than ten percent of their yearly business? Usually not, mm-hmm. but it exists, mm-hmm. and they're playing with it because ten years ago they were getting beaten up. And they're mm-hmm. oh, I'm gonna pull this contract, pull that contract. They're like, okay, well, I have all the people. I'm just gonna build something. Okay. Yeah, right. So right. that that definitely is happening. The internet is a massively valuable tool. The manufacturing industry, frankly. Um, it, some of the industry is just learning that it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. you're seeing right. more and more no. people, and, and, and it's usually on the transition of ownership right. from one generation to the next. The next one's like, okay, we're going to go on the internet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, Hey, there's this cell phone thing. But more interesting than that, even you used to only have access to the OEMs that you had access to. Mm-hmm. So even in your typical situation where you're manufacturing for someone else, you only knew who was in your local area. Well, now the internet has allowed these manufacturers to show everybody what they do. Right. And that has been a game changer because it took away a lot of the, frankly, pressure that the OEMs were able to put on manufacturing and drive and drive and cost cut. And I mean, we had a client one time literally argue over um they wanted one extra inch of tape on all their boxes um and it was going to actually affect a margin on something <laughs> like you're just sitting there going guys we're pretty much at the end of cost cutting yeah right no pun intended right i mean right <laughs> yeah so but that was that but that changed because yeah. suddenly it's like oh wait you're not the only ones that have a huge marketing team we have people that can see us all over the nation or all over the world now. Right. So really, and all of my clients are very across all of our companies. They're our partners. And mm-hmm. I, I really hate these buzzwords. Everyone's like, oh, we're in a partnership. No, we demand a partner mm-hmm. or you are a customer. Yep. And we, we have some people that are customers and they are told they're customers. You place an order, you get what you want, get out. Like, yep. Yep. <laughs> sorry. Yep. Right, right. <laughs> Or we have a true partnership that goes both ways. Right. Uh, here's maybe one that's, you know, as you're describing this, I started thinking about it. And I'm like, okay, you know, I look at someone like Amazon, right? And, you know, even today, I would contend that, you know, it's become, I, I actually frame up Amazon as a supply chain company now, right? It sort of was books and then e-commerce and then logistics. And I actually look at it as a full supply chain platform, just in the consumer world, right? That's my own two cents. Now, my question is, you know, Amazon has done a pretty, whether you like them or dislike them, they've done an amazing job of kind of migrating across the whole supply chain, right? From owning the relationship with the customer to the logistics to now even getting into where I'm headed, sort of private labeling their solutions, competing against, you know, they're kind of breaking the the, the, the Walmart sort of golden rule. They're competing with their kind of producers a little bit, right? Again, it's, but it's out there. It's not like this is a hidden thing, but I don't think they've actually dipped their toe into true manufacturing, right? And I hadn't thought of it till now, but 
why do you think that is? Is it just too complicated for them? Like, I mean, it's one of these, it's the lowest common foundational element that they have just show no interest in controlling that I'm aware of. So there's, there's a couple, first off, manufacturing is its own beast. And it's kind of known to be its own beast. Um, Also, there's a lot of very good manufacturers in the world. Right. And and, and frankly, Amazon has dipped in. Okay. Yeah. yeah, That's what I was asking. They own a significant share of this company called Rivian. Yeah, sure. Of course. And they're building cars. Yep. So they are, they are testing it. I see. I see. They are doing it quietly. They're mm-hmm. doing it through other companies that already are building that platform. Mm-hmm. But they are, when people get into manufacturing, oddly, they do it as quiet as they possibly can, except for Elon Musk, who did it as loud <laughs> as he possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> He's He's almost different. Different. Yeah, I mean, Elon's Elon, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, right, so, right. But if, if you really look at, <laughs> at the richest Americans in history, most of them usually built something in, a manu- uh, in manufacturing. Yep. Yep. That, that, that is, but it is, it is its own beast. It is, you, and it's a different model. Mm-hmm. So, but Amazon's definitely getting into it. And mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at, look at Warren Buffett's portfolio, I think it's like 35% of it is manufacturing companies. Yep. Like it, it's, the, 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 everybody has their hands in it. They're as quiet about it as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing too is it's polarizing. So say you want to get into manufacturing something, okay, in your Amazon. Mm-hmm. If I find out that you, you, you're doing a white label product for Amazon and you're doing my product and Amazon's undercutting, mm-hmm. the, the client will leave. Yep. So everyone, it, it's one of the oddest things about being in the manufacturing industry is you usually can't tell anybody, anybody what you're doing because right. it's somebody else's IP. So we build some of the coolest things at our at different plants, and I'm not allowed to tell anybody. <laughs> like we can't put up, we can't put up promo shots. We can't put up this because it's somebody else's IP, and nobody wants anybody to know who's making their stuff. Well, now, okay, so you're going to open up a door for me here, which is, and I'm just going to be my two year old self here. Why is that? Right. Like transparency around manufacturing feels to me as an entrepreneur talking to you as an opportunity to sort of blow open manufacturing to really like, you know, have innovation go like berserk. Right. By closing it down so hard like this, you've actually kind of constrained it a little bit, quite frankly. It's surely fear that competitors will find out where your stuff's being made. Right. That's it. It's. Yeah. And. To some extent, rightfully so, yeah. because if if I'm working with a client and we've done this many times, where we develop a really really cool way of manufacturing for them, well, they had to go through all the pain of me learning how to do that. Yeah, and now they're worried. Wait, can my competitor come in with no pain and just instantly be where I am? So that's where the that's where people try to hide their manufacturers because you've got all of this stuff that's going on and in a true manufacturing partnership you're helping the oem figure out how to do what they're trying to do right right well let me but does does that not change sorry to interrupt but let me ask the question that does not go back to your point about things changing faster the pace of change the rate of change does that not that change the equation a little bit that you're describing it it does okay and and we're in an interesting moment in time for everything within manufacturing is 
there it is really it's really kind of just developing and we're, we're watching it and i mean but i'll tell you the level of secrecy some even simple stuff requires mm-hmm. we have uh, we have a plant that does a bunch of marketing displays and uh we, we service all the big boxes uh we've we do tons and tons of corrugated displays we invested to have all of our machinery run upside down so you can't see the images on it when it's running. Oh. <laughs> so that if somebody walks through my plant, they can't see what's running on my machinery. Wow. And, and like, that is the level that this gets to. Because say I've got another client in the oh building looking at something, or I've got a janitor coming by and cleaning, and there's some marketing message that nobody knows about there yet. So we invested to have it all flip upside down. Oh my God. Okay. So, I mean, I, wow. Now, now I'm, now I'm going to, this is going to be hard for me to constrain myself here, but okay. So you're, cause those are all opportunities. Those, those are all significant opportunities. Those are all reasons why things are going to blow up. And, and honestly, what I'm hearing here is what happened in technology land, which was closed software versus open source software. Yeah. I think we know who won, right? Nice. Without question. And so it kind of comes back to all these closed systems that we see in our world, including everything we've been referring to, are just systematically getting blown apart. And we've kind of been going further and further down into the economy. We're at manufacturing now. And that feels like, from what you're describing, kind of one of these things that, it's probably like supply chain, everyone's a part of it in some way, shape, or form. So, But it's so obvious that no one really pays attention to it, or it's so core, or whatever you want to call it. But it feels like, much like supply chain is going through its own kind of, you know, uh, phoenix rising out of the ashes right now, manufacturing's right there too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I get called crazy by people on a regular basis, but I will take the phone call from any other manufacturer. Yeah, and right, I will, right. I, I'll, I'll tell them 95 to 98% of what we do and what we know. Of course, there's always a little secret sauce I, can, I can't share. Sure, sure. But it, people are like, what, 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 why'd you do that? It'll be like an hour-long call on a Saturday. Yeah. Actually, I just did one of these. I was going to breakfast with my wife, and I had forgotten that I had told these guys I'd do it. So we go, and I ended up an hour in the call on a Zoom, and we're, I'm having them walk me through their plant. Like, okay, I would adjust this here. I would do... And she's like, why, why do you do these? I'm like, because... I was fortunate coming up that people did it for me. And it was because I was so young. And the, the older guys usually got ready to retire. They didn't care about sharing their secrets. Mm-hmm. So I, that's the way I learned. And that you got to see all this crazy stuff. And everyone's like, well, you guys, are, you guys have always grown well. And like your companies run smoother. I'm like, it's because we share. Because of what you just described. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's like Jesus. Like, it's right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, again, I'm, I'm looking at the clock here and I'm going, I just to be conscious of time because I know you got a busy schedule and, and I want to keep this under an hour and I, I, I could literally spend the next couple of days with you. So I, I hope maybe we have a chance to revisit this. But let me let me kind of go a little bit out there for a second. Not that, that we haven't been drifting in and around. And I'm going to tease it here a little bit, but but how do you see the role of the space economy starting to play in? I mean, that's out there now, but I'm starting to, I mean, you're already seeing the early warning indicate. I mean, it's, it's, it's a foregone conclusion 50 years from now, we're going to have, be having a bi-directional supply chain and there's going to be manufacturing and yada, yada, yada. They're already talking about the terraforming that's going into the moon, going to Mars and things of that nature. There's a lot of, you know, in the innovation and invention going on in that space. 
But even now they're talking, I mean, again, they're talking on these silly comments, but whatever, you know, here's a comment. It's got all this material in it. If we had that here, we can manufacture it, yada, yada. I mean, I know it's out there, but I mean, you feel like one of these people that probably thinks about this shit. What are you seeing out there in that, in that realm, right? As you see Astra and SpaceX and everybody go out there. So that's above my pay grade for, uh, on a lot of levels. <laughs> right. right, I got it, I got it, no problem. What, what I will say is really cool yeah. is the entire space and rocket industry. Yes. Um, it's very much the four-minute mile. Yep. Elon, Elon ran the four-minute mile. Yep. And I don't care what space billionaire you're, anybody wants to try to claim it was, Elon yep. ran Elon, the four-minute yep. Yep. And a bunch of other people have come behind and they are now running the four-minute mile. Correct. And what's cool is the innovation they're doing to make these things work. Yep. And they are very much... So NASA, amazing at what they did. But the when, reality... Yeah, back then. Yeah. Right. The reality is, is NASA is a bunch of incredibly intelligent people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need the guys who started at 15 years old to look at your thing and go, I can make it easier like this. I don't know why that you guys are telling me to make it like that. Yep. And that that is where I'm really excited because you're starting to see them come up with very novel ideas that are changing how these rockets are built and how is a fairing formed. And that is going to be unbelievable when you really start seeing it. And then watching that innovation pour back into just simple manufacturing. That's where I'm really interested, not getting diamonds off of some comment. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Well, let me, let, me, let me bridge a gap then because one, and this is a selfish plug to go get them, but uh, you know, I'm a big fan. I, I'm a big fan of Elon and SpaceX and all that sort of stuff, but also quietly kind of number two, in my opinion, which might be number one, is a company called Astra. And that was founded by a guy named Chris Kemp. And you're laughing because you're probably working with them for God's sakes because no. you're talking about it because so, they're the ones re, re-engineering the whole manufacturing process. Okay. So, so I am, um, I am a very big fan yeah. of uh, of what Elon's done. I'm a very yeah. big fan of what Astra's done. Yeah. My executive vice president of manufacturing was one of the first six manufacturing directors at Tesla before oh, he um, before he before they even had a building. Yeah. He he literally launched it with, with Elon. Wow. He left and he was the director of manufacturing for Astra. Right. And I remember in it <laughs> so and, and, and to, to help launch Astra. And I remember sitting with him, um, the, the guy, he's actually, he happens to be uh, with me on this trip. That and is, I remember sitting that in is his, a small in, world, Jason. This is yeah. freaky small I, right now. But, but I remember sitting in his interview. And actually, I wasn't even in his interview. I was somewhere else in, in a plant or something like that. And my brother calls me, he goes, you need to meet this gentleman. And I'm like, okay. So I come down, I, I meet him. And I'm like, what uh tell me that he goes well i was at astra he goes um what's the goal of that like what's what is astra because i wasn't a hundred percent sure he goes they want to build one rocket every day Mm -hmm. to launch a rocket every day Mm -hmm. i'm like wow that that's ridiculous like that how the hell would you do that he goes easy if it takes three months to build a rocket start building one today start building one tomorrow start (laughs) building one the next day and in three months you'll have a rocket built every day right and I remember thinking, this is why it's important to bring process and manufacturing guys into, into the conversation. Because to him, he's like, it's not hard. 
Like, it's just an assembly line. It's a very long, three-month-long assembly line, but it's just an assembly line. Sure. And that thinking is what's going to be really amazing to watch come out. Right, right, right. And I think very much so. All right, well, let me let me just sort of wind down. And, you know, any any parting thoughts or things that are going on or, you know, anything that you wanted to highlight? Just, you know, I mean, there's a mazillion things going on. You obviously are open to networking on LinkedIn. You know, you've got a very public persona that's out there, clearly very approachable, conversational. I mean, anything else that you want to just close in, in thoughts? The biggest thing is check out mrca.net. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're interested in investing in our private equity side, there's plenty of information there. You can also uh, ask for more, do all that. Also, and I, I, I really tell everyone this, there is a way on the website to schedule time directly on my calendar. It was directly oh, cool. with me. And it can be about anything. It can be about, I've got questions of manufacturing. It can be, hey, um, I, I, I legitimately have had people go, hey, I've got a young kid who wants to start a business. What should I do? Uh, what should I tell them? Um, if, if you're interested in investing, if you've got a company that you want to sell or that you're, that you're interested in, anything, mm-hmm. take that time on my calendar. It, if I've got the gap open, uh, it'll tell you. And I am more than happy to sit and talk. And it's, this is, I I truly believe that if we continue conversations, we really get everyone stronger. 100% 100% agreed, and, and, and you're speaking, you're even, you, that's like a plug for the show. I mean, that's the whole, you know, that's the whole point of getting out here in these conversations. So this is, at, you know, beyond my wildest expectations, Jason, such a pleasure. Um, I hope we can do it again, but I, we'll obviously stay in touch because we're both out there on, on, on LinkedIn, but this has just been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at requis.com.